Okay, let me just meet everybody. Welcome everyone. Stanley's arrived now as well. This is the Shir <coughs> on the book of Yechazkel, Elish Nishmos Mefraim Shmuel Ben Avramaria Cohen and Chayat Tova Bas Eliezer Mendel Cohen on the book of Yechazkel. The Shir is also dedicated to our soldiers, all our support staff, all our logistics, all our medical staff, all our f- first responders, and everybody else that's in the land of Israel that's contributing to the dire situation we find ourselves in. Um, and maybe this learning be a bracha from, uh, lead to a bracha from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that uh, we should be successful in everything we undertake. Um, we left off two weeks ago. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> excuse me. In chapter 13, and we're up to verse 10. And in verse is 9 and 10 and 11, um, God is dealing and Yechezkel is dealing with false prophets, false prophets that were very uh, prominent at the time of the first temple. And um, he's just God, just uh, in the previous verse and the previous two verses, describe what their punishment will be. And now he describes some of the things that they've been up to, some of the things that the false prophets in Jerusalem have been up to, to disrupt the words of the true prophets. So this is chapter 13, verse 10. Yan ubiyan. Indeed. Hitu es ami. These people, these false prophets misled my people. Laman, this is what they said. Shalom. There was going to be peace. Ain't shalom. There'll be no peace. Vuhu bona Um And the nation built a wall. They built a wall to defend themselves from the Babylonians. And they, the false prophets, plastered it with weak cement, with weak mortar. Now, this is an allegory. Obviously, there's no indication from this verse that false prophets actually took part in the building of any defensive wall around Yerushalayim or that they used inferior cement or mortar in the process. This verse is God describing why their punishment, which is described in the previous book verse, had to be so severe. Just a reminder that there was three parts to the punishment of the false prophets, that they their future generations would be cut off from Torah and the Jewish people. That was the first one, that they'd be cut off from the land of Israel. Their descendants would not have no place in the land of Israel, and they themselves would have no Olam Bar. Uh, no Olam Habar, no world to come. Uh, as, as was described by the Malbim in his uh, analysis, uh, based on the Gemara in Brochus. And um, the Malbim explains again exactly what the analogy to the this inferior wall means. That uh, has been described here that the Jews were building a defensive wall. That's true. Um, that they hoped would keep the Babylonians out. And it says, that the, um, the false prophets were plastering that wall with weak mortar, with weak cement. So what's this verse actually mean? So again, it's an allegory. And the Malbim says quite clearly that the double expression at the beginning of this verse, yan ubiyan, is designed to express the fact that the punishment of the false prophets was a double punishment, a punishment within a punishment. Yeah, and it's designed to be appropriate to them, both in terms of the effect of the false prophecy that they had given to the Jewish people in Jerusalem and the effect that it had on the Jews of Jerusalem, together with their own sin of actually delivering false prophecies in the first place. And the Malvin says the analogy works like this, or the allegory of this verse works like this. False prophets built walls to mislead the Jews by telling them that there would be peace, which means, firstly, says the Malvin, the false prophets assured the Jews of internal peace, meaning that the prophets told the Jews that their direction, their lifestyle, uh, serving idols, paganism, sexual impropriety, and the corrupt justice system was okay. It was good. It was moral. It was appropriate. And they had no need to listen to the regular prophets and do any type of teshuva. That's number one. That's yan. Ubi yan, 
the second word, the double expression that starts at the verse, Yan Uba Yan. Secondly, the false prophets assured the Jews of external peace, not just internal peace, external peace, meaning that they assured the Jews that the Babylonian enemy would not succeed in breaching the walls of the of Yushalayim. So there's a double problem here with these false prophets. Um, they told the people that the, their way of life was perfectly appropriate. And number two, and, and they could carry on with that peaceful existence. And secondly, there would be no war. There'd be no that they'd have peace. They'd have uh, external peace because the Babylonians would never be able to break through um, to uh, into Yerushalayim. And by doing this, they they strengthened the determination of the Jews of Yerushalayim not to do any teshuva um, because the Jews were assured that their way of life was okay and that the Babylonians would never uh, conquer them. But the truth of the matter is that there was no prospect of any peace, as God says in the verse, for Enshalom, there was no prospect of peace. And the, the false prophets were merely building a straw man and a barrier. They were painting and portraying a false image of reality. And the effect was that the people were also building a double wall. Now, the reality was that they built a wall. And they built a wall around Yerushalayim that they convinced themselves would keep the Babylonians at bay. And they built a wall between themselves and God. And that was the fault of the false prophets. Um, And that, the wall they built, the wall they built around the city would not keep the Babylonians out. And the wall they built between themselves and God would inhibit any effort at teshuva, uh, any type of repentance that could aid in mitigation from the suffering that was about to come their way. So the effect, says the Malbim, regarding both the ideas of internal peace, you don't need to, meaning you don't need to do teshuva, and the external peace, meaning the Babylonians will never succeed in breaking through the walls of Jerusalem, uh, this, these two falsehoods were imbibed by the Jews from the false prophets, and it caused them to be completely misled. And the real truth was this, the weak walls of Yushalayim would never be able to hold back the invading Babylonians, uh, even though it took the Babylonians quite a long time. The siege took took a long time. Um, the walls of Yushalayim eventually caved, as we discussed, on the 9th of um, uh, Tammuz uh, for the first temple, and on the 17th of Tammuz for the second temple. That's the first thing. The walls did not hold out. And secondly... Uh, as it says at the end of the verse, the false prophets created a chayitz. Now, this is a very strange word in this verse, in, 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 in verse 10. The word chayitz comes from the language of mechitza. Uh, now, we know what a mechitza is. A mechitza is a dividing wall. So the, the idea here, um, that the prophets created a dividing wall. Uh, between the Jews of Yerushalayim and God, which was the ultimate intention of the false, false prophets all along. And this is something that not only Yecheskel points out, but multiple prophets point out, that the Jews are very susceptible. They're, very, they're quite prepared to listen to a false prophet if, if it fits in with the, you know, the ideas of an optimistic future. And they're prepared to reject the words of a true prophet if it means they've got to get off their backsides and do some type of teshuva. And it's interesting, Yeshayahu, the prophet Yeshayahu, 150 years earlier, describes this attitude. He says, this is in chapter 59 of Yeshayahu. He says, Your sins were separating. They disconnected you. Your sins separated you from, you made a, a, a barrier between you and, God, and your God. And your sins and the barrier you created because of your sins caused God to hide his face from you so that he will not be prepared to listen to any of your appeals, which of course will only come at the last possible moment. The Jews only started appealing to God once the Babylonians were in the city. Yeah, that's like appealing to, um, you know, it's like appealing to, to the doctor when you, you know, on your deathbed. Um, 
and you know it's just not going to work. And even though there was always the chance that the people could see through the holes in the words and the arguments of the false prophets, because there were plenty of holes in what they were saying, uh, and see through the gaps in the wall of nonsense that the false prophets were espousing, nevertheless, whenever the words of the false prophets were questioned, uh, the false prophets embellished their story to make it more believable. They had this policy, as is often the case of people that are very good uh, talking on their feet, to embellish a story, to think cleverly on their feet, and to tell people exactly what they want to hear. And that gives people uh, internal um, satisfaction. And even though, you know, propaganda, if you say it often enough, you say a lie often enough, so people start to believe it. And um, what they used to do was if they were questioned, they'd simply add some additional flimsy material and give assurances that the wall is now sealed and impenetrable. And in this way, the false prophets made certain that the Jews of Yerushalayim were completely corrupted, and that the Hashkocha, that God's providence and God's protection, would desert the city and its inhabitants, which is exactly what happened. Now, there's a, a footnote here regarding the words, Bonechayit, at the end of the verse, it says, the nation was building a wall, Bone Chayetz. Now, we said that the word Chayetz means like a Mechitza, from the language of a Mechitza, separation fence. Um, and the Chidah, Reb Chaim David Azilai, makes the following uh, observation on this word Chayetz, which, again, it's a very strange word. It doesn't occur uh, regularly at all. And he says, for who Bone Chayetz? What does it mean that they built a Chayetz, a wall? So he says, Afshalirmos Chayitz Begematria Gehenim. That Chayitz uh, has got the same numerical value as the word Gehenim, which means uh, hell, uh, which has got a gematria of 108. Um, and also the gematria of Kach. This is what you're taking. This is what you're going to get. Uh, Loma, he says, to tell them, Yarvichu Gehenim. The false prophets have earned Gehenim. In other words, by building this wall, by creating this barrier between the Jews of Yerushalayim and uh, God, uh, they've inherited their, their payback will be Gehenim, which is exactly the same. Uh, Gehenim is Gimel, Hey, Yud, which is uh, 18, Nun is 50, which is 68, and Mem is 40, it's 108, and Chaitz is the same. Ches is 8, Yud is 10, is 18, and Sadik is 90. Uh, 108, 108. So that's, that's his drosha, that uh, this word chayetz is uh, a reference to the fact that that's what they're going to inherit for creating this barrier and being responsible for the Jews not doing any type of teshuva and yushalayim. They're going to inherit hell. They're going to inherit Gehenna. Okay. So that, that's verse 10 in the flimsy wall. Uh, now God tells Yechazkel what to say to the false prophets regarding their prophecies of peace and security um, concerning Yerushalayim's future. So God says to, to Yechezkel, Emar al-Tochei, this is verse 11, Emar al-Tochei tofel b'yipol hoya geshem shotef. Say to the plasterers of weak mortar, say to these false prophets, behold, it will yipol, be yipol, it will fall. The wall will fall. The wall of Yushalayim will fall. There'll be a torrent of rain. And then I'll drop the, st- the stones of El Gabish on the city. Um, and a tempest. A tremendous tempest, a tremendous wor- uh, wind will uproot them, will uproot the people, will uproot the city. So just to un- unpack this verse, um, God tells Yechezkel, MRL toche tofel, say to the plasterers of weak mortar. In other words, those that are creating the trouble were false prophets. You tell them, all your prophecies of the future your prophecies of peace and prosperity for the Jews of Jerusalem, 
and your predictions that the Babylonians will never break into the city, all those predictions will fall. They're all false. This is what actually is going to happen to Yerushalayim. Three disasters and three realities of the future, um, regarding the future. Firstly, in this verse, he says, Geshem Shotef, they'll be driving rain. Now, what does it mean they'll be driving rain? Uh, again, this is an allegory. Just like a man-made wall with inferior mortar will collapse and dissolve in the face of a torrent of rain, so too the wall of Yushalayim will dissolve and collapse from the constant onslaught of the Babylonian army. The rain, which is an allegory for the Babylonian army, will dissolve, destroy, not just the wall of Yushalayim, but in, in the process, it will dissolve and lay bare the false predictions of peace, safety, and security that was propounded by these false prophets. Secondly, the second reality, says God, then God says, I will drop the stones of El Gabish on the city. Now, what are the stones of El Gabish? Now, uh, what's interesting about the stones of El Gabish is we've heard about them before. And um, uh, we'll start off with the Gemara, the Gemara in Brochus on Daf Nun, Nun Dalad explains what the stones of El Gabish are. And the Gemara says, My Avne El Gabish. What are these stones that Yechezkel is referring to here that are going to fall on Yerushalayim, the stones of El Gabish? So the Gemara says they are the hailstones of the seventh plague that remained suspended in the air and did not fall because they remained suspended al-gav-ish. That's the word el-gav-ish. It's got three words, el-gav-ish, that the, um, the, the last of the hailstones that uh, rained down on Egypt did not hit the ground. They were suspended in the air, Al-Gab-Ish, on the back of a man. Um, and later they fell down, Al-Gab-Ish, on the back of another man. And the Gemara explains like this. Um, originally, when uh, the, the plague of hailstones hit Egypt, um, Pharaoh begged uh, Moshe Rabbeinu to stop the, the hailstones because of the damage that it was doing and the death it was causing. Um, and so Moshe appealed and uh, he looked up at the sky and uh, he suspended the falling of these uh, borod, of the, these hailstones. And But some of them were still falling and the, the ones that still falling were suspended in midair. Um, um and this man, Al-Gav-Ish, that's, uh, where the word El-Gav-Ish comes from, the man is Moshe Rabbeinu. He held them up. Vaha'ish um, Moshe, uh, he's called the Ish, the man, the great man, as in the Posik, Vaha'ish Moshe Onov Ma'od. And the man Moshe was very modest, which is a Posik in Bamidbar. And so it says, the Gemara says, we've got this Posik, this verse at the end in, in Shemos, uh, in chapter nine, regarding the end of the hail, uh, the plague of Borod, of hailstones, it says, Vayetze Moshe meim paro Moshe left Pharaoh and he left the city. Vayifros um, kapov el Hashem and he spread out his hands towards God. Vayachdalu hakolos and the thunder, Vahaborod and the hail. Uh, and the thunder and the hail ceased and it did not come down and hit the earth so the implication from the verse that, that there were these last hailstones that were already heading towards the earth that did not reach the ground but rather remained suspended in the air and later they start, these stones, these hailstones that were Al-Gav-Ish, like so to speak, Moshe carried them around with him on his back, um, did eventually descend because of somebody else. And uh, the person they descended for was Yehoshua, who, who 
took over control of these uh, stones, these borod, these hailstones. I remember the hailstones were something we've we've talked about before in the first chapter. They were the meeting of fire and ice. So the, the outside of the hail hailstones was ice, and the inside was fire. Now, in in the normal course of um, uh, uh, of the natural world, that couldn't possibly be because we know that if uh, if you've got something that's made out of water, it'll if there's enough of it, it'll extinguish the fire by <clears throat> denying it oxygen. On the other hand, if you got, the fire is more powerful than the water, it'll just the, the fire will evaporate the the water <clears throat> into steam. So the two things can't live together. But that was the power of the hailstones in Egypt. They were uh, divinely sent. And when Moshe died, Yoshua carried them around with him. He was also called Al-Gav-Ish. He was also called an Ish. It says by Yoshua, Yoshua binun Ish asher ruach bo. Yoshua binun, a man who, who had within him this divine spirit. He had the abilities of Moshe Rabbeinu to a certain extent. And it was when Yoshua and his army entered the land and waged war against the army of the Amori, the Amorite kings, <clears throat> God told him not to fear, even though they were heavily outnumbered, because God would deliver them into his hands. And indeed, the Amorites died by means of some of these stones. It says in Yahushua, Vayihi benusom mipnei Yisrael. And it was towards the end of the battle with the Amori, the Amorites, that the Amorites fled. Bermorad Beis Choron. They're on the slope of Beis Choron. Hashem Hishlich Alehem Avodim Gedolos Min And God, as they were fleeing, cast down great stones from heaven upon them Ad Azekah, as they fled to this place Azekah by Amusu, and they died. <clears throat> there were more um, Amori who died from these hailstones, from these hailstones left over from the plague of Borod, from, they were more killed by the hailstones, again, left over from the plague, the seventh plague, than the children of Israel, than the Israelite army managed to kill with the sword. So, uh, it appears <clears throat> that these stones of Algabish uh, were the leftover stones, leftover um, hailstones from the seventh plague. But it, you, it would appear that those that were left over uh, from the plague of Borod in Egypt seem to have been used up at this at the time that Yoshua defeated the Amori, because that's what it says here. Um, so what does God here mean in Yechezkel that va'etena avne algabish topalna? I God will I'll drop some of the stones of algabish, meaning the, the stones of borod. Um, so the answer is this: what God is saying is that the effects of the Babylonian assault and invasion of Yushalayim, uh the Geshem Shotef, the torrents of rain described in the first verse will have the same effect as both times God uses the hailstones in the past. When God used them on Egypt, the effect was, uh, the Torah says, the effect of the hailstones on Egypt was vayach haborod b'chol eretz Misraim, that uh, these hailstones struck the whole of the land of Egypt. No one escaped, not the fields, not men, not animals. And so, what it means when it says that the stones of Algabish will fall on Yushalayim, it means that everyone inside Yushalayim will be attacked by the Babylonian army. No one, not humans, not animals, will be safe from the attack. Furthermore, uh, as we discussed earlier, this is the Gemara, some Jews will manage to escape the city. But all those that manage to escape the marauding Babylonian soldiers and escape the city will be subject to what happened the second time the stones of Algabish fell. At the time of Yoshua, when the Amorites were fleeing, 
That when the Amorites fled, God sent down these hailstones with fire inside them, and many died. So the double effect of what God is saying here is that when the Babylonians come inside Yerushalayim, it will have the same effect as the plague of Borod, the plague of the hailstones with the fire inside Yerushalayim. And not only that, even people that thought they'd escaped the massacre in Yerushalayim by the Babylonians would be caught up in the secondary effects. Uh, they'll be killed, just like what happened to the fleeing Amorites in their battle with Yeshua. And the only people that would escape will be those that would go into exile. So that's what it means, Avne uh, El Gabish, that um, no one is safe. No one is safe from the Babylonians, not those that remained in Yerushalayim, and not those that uh, that escaped. Uh, building on the two stories of Moshe, what happened in Egypt itself, that no one was safe from the Sahel stones, so no one will be safe in Yerushalayim from the Babylonians, and also the fleeing, those that f- managed to flee Yerushalayim, hoping to get to safety, they will be rounded up and killed, just like the Amorites were attacked by the leftover hailstones from Egypt that were employed at the time of Yoshua. And finally, the third thing that God tells them here is Ruach Sa'oros Tavakea. There'll be a tempest, a, a storm that will uproot them. And the meaning of this is don't believe for one minute that this disaster that has befallen you was natural. All the devastation that you will suffer comes about as a result of divinely induced tempest, which is, has been described earlier on in the very first chapter of Yechezkel. We learned a long time ago, a hundred and something shirim ago, in the very first chapter of Yechezkel, in chapter 1, verse 4, when Yechezkel was walking by the river Kavar, he looked up uh, at the sky, he says, he reported, Ah, Yechezkel saw a tempest, a tremendous storm was coming from the north. And we mentioned when discussing that verse, uh, the Gomorrah Chagiga. And the Gomorrah Chagiga said, where did that tempest, where did that tempest storm come from and where was it going to? So that Yechezkel saw it coming from the north. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Yehuda and Rab said, it went to conquer. This was a storm prepared by God, the storm of war that was that went to conquer and subjugate the world under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. That God assisted that Nebuchadnezzar in um, conquering the whole of the known world, or certainly the Middle East, and asked the Gemara, why was all this necessary? So that the nations of the world would not say that God delivered his children into the hands of a lowly, pathetic nation. God said with regard to the course of action that he felt was necessary. Who was it that caused me, God, to assist, to inspire the worshippers of molten images, of Avodah of paganism, the Babylonians, forcing me to wage and win their wars for them? Why did I do that? Why did I do that from the men for the men from the north? It was the sins of Israel that led me to do so. Hence my anger, my Ruach Sa'ara, pushed me into a corner to assist the pagans in, in punishing the Jews for their sins. So this is the, the third part of it, where it says here in our verse, the Ruach Sa'ara Tavakea, the tempest that uh, was already already in the making. God prepares everything in advance. This, this, we've got some feedback here. We just mute everybody. Uh, this tempest was prepared in advance. The tempest is the Babylonian army like a whirlwind. When they come into Yerushalayim, nothing will be left. Just like when a tempest or a hurricane or a twister hits the Midwest, so everything is destroyed and Yerushalayim will be reduced to rubble. 
So these are the three things um, that God has mentioned in this verse. So here, God describes how the optimistic predictions of the false prophets would collapse and be replaced by the dark reality of what true prophets have been warning about for centuries. Geshem Shotev, the torrent of an... These are the words of the prophet here. Geshem Shotev, in verse 11. Geshem Shotev, the torrent of an invading army. Avne Algabish Tupolna, the massacres in Yerushalayim and those caught, uh, and those who thought they had escaped, just like the Borod in Egypt, just like the the fire uh, encrusted uh, hailstones in Egypt, and not only that, not only that, Baruach Sa'oros Tavakea, and the real realization of the people that the words of the false prophets misled them and what was happening to them was truly a divinely in, in, assisted invasion that was impossible to evade and um and so god says when the babylonians break finally do break into yushalayim what will the jews say what will the, when when they realize at the last possible moment that the babylonians are actually going to break into yushalayim that there's not going to be any peace and that, you know, a massacre is on the cards here. What will the Jews of Yerushalayim be asking the false prophets? What will they be saying to the false prophets? So he says, God says to them, And behold, the wall has fallen. Then the Jews of Yerushalayim will say to you, the false prophets, where is the plaster that you have plastered? Where's the wall? Where's the promises? What happened to these promises that you gave us? says the apostle, When the Babylonians eventually break into the city, the inhabitants will demand. They won't have very much time to demand it, but they'll want to know from the false prophets. Where is the plaster that you mortared? Meaning, as Rashi says, Where is the peace and security that you promised and assured us of? And of course, the false prophets will have no answer to this question. God, on the other hand, has got an answer to this question. And it's this. This is the answer to the question. Like what happened to the, to the words of the false prophets? This is what happened says God. Lochain, verse 13. So says the Lord God. I caused a tempest to uproot them with my fury. This is what happened. I, I caused a, a tremendous hurricane, tempest to uproot you, to uproot my people in my fury. Bahamosi, my fury. The Geshem Shotev Baapi. And there'll be a torrent of rain with my anger. But Abne El Gabish And the stones of Al Gabish with my fury will be used to destroy and to destroy the base of Mikdosh. So a simple reading here seems to indicate that this is just a repeat of verse eleven. So if you read verse eleven which we've already dealt with today, go back to verse 11, and God says, you know, Amar, he tells Yechezkel, uh, tell the people, tell the false prophets, that Geshem Shotev, there'll be a torrent of rain, meaning the army, Avne Elgabish, no one will escape, Baruch Sa'ora, this was all prepared before by God, this tremendous hurricane, this tremendous tempest of the Babylonian army, to Bakea, to uproot you, and uh, here in this verse, in verse 13, it just seems that God is um, um, repeating exactly what he says then. He says, Thus says, so says God. I'll cause a tempest to root them with my fury, which was mentioned in the previous verse. 
and there'll be a torrent of rain with my anger, which he mentioned in the previous verse. And the stones of Elgabish with my fury, with fury to destroy it, to destroy the city, destroy the people, and ultimately destroy the base of Migdosh, which he mentioned in the previous verse. So a simple reading here seems to indicate that's just a repeat of verse 11. But this verse, the thing about Tanakh is you've got to read the verses very carefully. And uh, we're dealing here with God and God's words. And you're dealing here with prophets and not just regular prophets. You're dealing here with Yechezkel, one of the greatest of the prophets. So there's no extra words here. So the verse is not just repeating what God threatened in verse 11. A careful reading of the two verses proves this. In verse 11, God describes how the optimistic predictions of the false prophets would collapse and be replaced by the dark reality of what the true prophets had been warning about for centuries. And God describes these events in verse 11 in a particular order. And he described them like this. Firstly, he said in verse 11, Geshem Shoteh, there'll be a torrent of rain, a violent, meaning a violent, an allegory for a violent invading Babylonian army. Then he says, then God says, the Etena Avne Algabish Tipolna. He says, secondly, there'll be a massacre in Yerushalayim. And even those that thought they'd escape the chaos in the city will either be killed while escaping or sent into exile. And after the massacre and destruction has, has ended, God says in verse 11, for Ruach Sa'oros to Vakea, then there'll be a realization of the people that the words of the false prophets misled them. And what was happening to them was a truly divinely assisted invasion that was in the planning for, for decades. And the destruction that was, looking back, impossible to evade. Now, that was the order of events as described in verse 11. And it's the order in, of events that will be perceived by the Jews themselves in real time. Because first they'll um, feel the Geshem Shoteh, they'll feel the, the torrents of the invading army. Secondly, they'll feel the Avne Algabish. They'll feel the massacres in Jerusalem, and they'll feel the massacres of the Jews that thought they'd escaped Jerusalem. And thirdly, Baruch Saoros to Vakea. Only then will come the realization that this disaster is from God, and neither they nor the false prophets could have done anything to prevent it. That is verse eleven. Is how the Jews in Jerusalem. We're going to perceive in real time what was going to happen to them. But now compare that order that we just described in verse 11 to the order of events described here in verse 13. And what you'll see is that here, the order of events are now being described not from the perspective of how they will be perceived by the Jews of Yushalayim in real time, but how they're being described from God's perspective, in God's order. First, he says in this verse, In order for God to bring all the destruction on Yehudah and Yerushalayim, there must have been a reason for him to do so. So here God tells the Jews, your realization that all this suffering was divinely inspired might have been your final thought, ex post facto after the invasion and after the massacres had taken place, when you'd realize you'd be misled by the false prophets. But the reality is, says God, I made provisions for this eventuality long before any of this destruction happened. I created, as it says in chapter one, I created the Ruach Sa'orah Bormin Atzofa. I arranged a long time in advance that the, the, the hurricane from the north, meaning the Babylonian army would arise to control the known world so that they could come from the north and, if necessary, be my tool in destroying you if you didn't do teshuva. And secondly, 
as a result of that, the result of you not doing teshuva for Geshem Shote for Api Yiyeh. Once I, says God, says, from my perspective, once I saw that, saw that you Jews in Yerushalayim had no intention of listening to the warnings of the true prophets and doing teshuva, and you, that you would rather be appeased by the optimistic nonsense espoused by the false prophets, I then unleashed the Babylonians like a torrent of water to come and besiege Yerushalayim and break through its flimsy walls and enter the city. And only then, only then, I got arranged for the bloodthirsty Babylonians, once they'd breached the walls of the city, to unleash violence inside Yerushalayim and massacre the population, burn down both the city and the temple, and even arrange for those who thought they'd escape the chaos in Yerushalayim to either be killed while escaping or to be exiled. And so what you see in verse 11 and verse 13 are the two perspectives. Um, from the perspectives of the Jewish people, they see the things happening to them in real time, and then they have a moment of an epiphany. They realize why this has happened. From God's perspective, this has been in the planning for a long time. And all the way along, God has prepared the path of the Babylonians, not wanting to unleash them. But at the end of the day, it's the behavior of the Jewish people that forced him to do so. And so verse 11 is the destruction of Yushalayim in in real time, as perceived by the Jews themselves. And verse 13 here is the actual order of events as arranged by God, as prepared by God. God's contingencies, uh, as we saw in Pashas Bereshis, um, God, so to speak, is the Bore, he's the creator of contingencies. That's an interesting conversation, interesting philosophical conversation that um, what happens if Adam and Eve wouldn't have eaten from the tree? Right? What would have happened then? So God's got contingencies for every every option. Every option you think you've got, God's got a contingency for it, which is why there's a, a concept in the creation of a contingency. If God didn't create the idea of contingencies for his own benefit, then we wouldn't have the use of contingency theories, which is a, a very, very deep philosophical argument or deep philosophical discussion. The idea of God's contingencies are they finite or are they infinite? Um, anyone that's done probability theory and dealt with tree diagrams, etc., um, will generally concede that um, normally tree diagrams are finite, but probably when you're dealing with God, uh, contingencies are infinite. God has got a contingency for every possible scenario that exists. And here we see in verse 13, this is God's contingency. Uh, just in case the Babylonians were held, were created or empowered just in case. It could have been if the Jews had done Teshuvah, that the Babylonians would have sunk back into um, the dustbin of history without ever being ever being able to conquer Yerushalayim. And they would have just been another empire that we'd never heard of, that the Jews had never heard of, that would have been eventually conquered by the Persians. And we wouldn't have any Kesha. We wouldn't have any connection to them. All, all this is conjecture. And it's all based on the ideas of contingency theory and chaos theory. And you can go, you can go, you can go mad thinking about it. What happens if the brothers wouldn't have sold Yosef? What would have happened then? The brothers wouldn't have, let's say the, God doesn't interfere with free will. So let's say the brothers wouldn't have sold Yosef. So Yosef wouldn't have gone down to Egypt, right? So the Jews wouldn't have gone down to Egypt. What would have happened then? Where would the Jews have gone into exile? God promised Abraham that the Jews would be in exile for 400 years. He didn't tell them which country they'd be in exile in, interestingly enough. He just said they'll be, they'll be servants for 400 years. So what happens if the brothers wouldn't have sold Yosef? What happens if the brothers would have said, oh, look, it's Joey, our brother. What a lovely, what a lovely surprise you're coming to see us. And they've all gone home with their arms around each other. And then Yosef wouldn't have been sold. He wouldn't have ended up in Egypt. What would God have done then? So you have to say God would have had a contingency. What would the contingency be? 
So who knows? We would have been exiled to Hungary or to Sweden or to, I don't know where, to uh, Detroit, Michigan. I don't know. We would have ended up somewhere. Um, and um, so this is the idea. But here God expresses this idea of his contingency. God makes plans in advance. Everything is prepared. And again, the, this idea of contingencies, chaos theory, um, uh, and etc. Uh, all all the things that go with these mathematical uh, uh, and prob- uh, in theories of probability and string theory, etc., etc. Uh, we don't have time to discuss it. Um, I'd love to discuss it with you, but we don't really have the time. It's a, an interest of mine, um, but we have to move on. So. Moving on in this verse, the Malvin provides a a little bit of uh, extra perspective in this verse. Um, And he makes a point here. If you read the verse, uh, what's interesting about the verse is that God uses two words to describe his anger in verse 13. Um, He says, I will cause a tempest, or I've caused a tempest to uproot them, Bahamosi, with my, which I translated is with my fury, God says, with my fury. The Geshem Shotev, and there'll be a torrent of rain, Ba'api, with my anger. And then he reverts afterwards to the Avne Algabish, to the destruction and the massacres, again with the language of Chema, the language of Chema, which is fury. So the Malvin here, first of all, he wants to tell you that there's, um, a difference between these two words, between the words chema, and again, just to reiterate the idea that we don't have synonyms in the Hebrew, Hebrew glad and happy um, and uh, rejoicing. These are all synonyms in, he- in English. In Hebrew, we don't have any synonyms. And so the word chema, which I've translated as fury, and af, which I've translated as anger, I could equally have used the reverse words to describe them in English, but in Hebrew, uh, they mean different things. And the the Malbim wants to let you know why it matters that these words are used. Yesh hevdel ben chemo ba'af. There's a big difference in Hebrew between the words chemo and af, as we translated between fury and anger, but those are just English words. The real words here are chema and af. What is chema? He hakas hapnimi hashoma belev. Chema is anger, internal anger that is uh, retained in the heart. The af who hisgalas hakas alide onesh. Af, the word af is when you turn that uh, anger that's internal that was internal, that was chema originally, it was an internal hatred or an internal uh, anger, you turn it into his galus hakas alide onesh. It it becomes external and it becomes, it's represented um, not as internal anger anymore, retained in the heart, but it manifests that anger expressed in actual punishment. So he says, Af external anger that manifests itself in the physical environment as a punishment as a result of chema, as a result of internal fury, is very dangerous in, is very dangerous indeed to the to the recipients or the victims. he writes. Sometimes the Faomim Acha Shietzea Afi Yenish Tchushach Hachema Ki Oz Tiskari Das Hakots of Al Yedeshia Henish Vikola Hamasa. Sometimes after the Af, after you, you've expended external anger and you've exploded and you've done something to take revenge, so to speak, or punish somebody uh, in the physical world, the Chema the internal fury subsides because then the mind of the aggrieved party cools down because it's exacted punishment or revenge on whoever has wronged it. And the anger is over. So first you have chema, the anger builds up in your heart. As soon as it gets to boiling point, it explodes into action. And once you've extracted punishment or you've extracted revenge, 
So you feel better about yourself that you've done it. So everything calms down. Ava says if Malbim. But if after the app, after the external anger comes out and punishment has been exacted or revenge has been exacted and still the chayma, the internal fury is still present in the heart, then there is no hope for the victims. And this is what God is saying in this verse. When my chema, my internal fury was actualized, uh, he says, when my chema, when God says, when my internal fury was actualized into af, into external anger and physical punishment of the Jewish people, when I unleashed my tool, the Babylonian army, on the city of Yushalayim, which is God's instrument of punished, punishment that he prepared in advance to satisfy his chema, so to speak, in human terms, to satisfy his interna- internal fury at the behavior of the Jews of Yushalayim, it's expressed itself not as calm as a calm rainstorm, but rather as a driving torrent as the Babylonians broke through the walls of the city. And normally when a human being does that, so that's the end of it, right? He builds up to boiling point in his heart, in his head, in his heart, and he explodes into anger and revenge and action and punishment and rebuke and violence. But then it's finished. But in this particular case, Despite this, God's internal fury remained unquenched. Not only did the, the, the Babylonians entering the city and destroying the city not quench God's anger, not God quench God's chema, uh, the app, the actual actuality of the invasion that didn't quench God's chema. It expressed itself in a second round of act, a second round of external anger, as the inhabitants of Yerushalayim were massacred, and the city of the and the base of Migdosh were, were burnt to the ground, and the escapees were captured and either killed or exiled, just like the effects of the hailstones that were felt by the Egyptians and the Amorites in Yeshua's time. At that point, only at that point, God's chema, God's external internal fury at the people for not listening to the prophets was satisfied. And the af, the external anger, abated. So if you look at the verse, it's very, the, the, about, the Malbim is very clever here. He says, look, look, look at the, look at what happened here. If you look at verse 13. <laughs> I prepared, I was angry with the Jewish people, and I prepared this storm. I didn't unleash it yet. It was chema. It was in my heart. I was angry. Then I let it go. When they didn't do teshuva, the geshem shotef api, I let forth, set forth my anger against them. But the Babylonians came in and conquered the city. But that wasn't enough. Because ye the Avne El Gabish Bechema Lachala. My my Chema wasn't uh quenched yet until Lachala, until everything was destroyed, until the people were massacred, the base Hamigdash was destroyed, and all those that were fleeing um were either captured and exiled or killed as well. So you had two a double a double dose. Whereas normally uh when you take an action um, the af releases the tension of the chema, the internal anger. But on this occasion, it took two goes. God, God, so to speak, uh, had two bites at the cherry. And uh, that's why the devastation in Yerushalayim, the chema, the original internal fury that God had at the Jewish people, so to speak. You can't really describe God as actually being angry or <clears throat> or furious or whatever it is. 
Um, but it's an idea of mishpat. It's an idea that they, they were judged and found wanting. Um, but the gods, so to speak, if you think about it in those hum in human terms, God's anger, his internal fury against the Jewish people was so great that he 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 let loose two two lots of af, two lots of action, terrible action. Not only were the whole city destroyed and the people massacred and and everybody everybody who tried to escape was either caught, killed, or exiled. Nothing was left over. No, no escapees. So that is the idea of God's anger. Now where we're up to, which we'll stop here because we've reached our time, we're going to go into verse 14. In verse 14, God describes the after effects of all his chema, of all his internal fury, and the after effects of his af, of all his external anger, of the uh, how God, so to speak, feels after he's released his anger against the people and how he feels about the effects of it the effects of the external anger that has now left the Jewish people without a city, a destroyed city, a million people dead, and the rest of the Jewish population in exile. Um, and he describes his feelings um, in verse uh, 14. I'll just read verse 14 and then we'll finish. God says, V'horasti esakir tem tofer. I'll demolish the wall that you plastered with wheat plaster. I made it fall to the ground and to its foundation. Its foundation of Nigla Yisoda. The very foundations of Yushalayim were exposed. And it will fall. Everything will fall. And you will perish. You will perish. Inside the city and out. All this, all this, I had to teach you all this. I had to do all this just to teach you the simple lesson that you should have known already. That I'm God. Now, exactly what that means, how to unravel this verse. It's a very difficult verse to unravel. Is God, is God regretting it? Um, like he's saying, you forced me into this. You forced me into demolishing your wall. You forced me into uh, revealing the foundations. The, the foundations of Yushalayim will had to be exposed, and uh, you forced me into killing a million Jews just just because you couldn't recognize Vidatemki and Ayasher. You couldn't recognize who the boss was. So we'll see exactly. Uh, how to understand this verse? Is God feeling sorry? Is God regretting? God, uh, uh, so to speak, God doesn't regret anything. He just regrets people's free will decisions. But um, we'll have to uh, examine this verse, please God, next week. In the meantime, thanks everybody for attending. I hope you enjoyed the share. Um, we made some progress today. We're up to verse 14, uh, which is where we'll pick up from next time, please God. I wish everyone a, a safe week. Um, I know everybody is trying to do their best for the people of Israel, uh, whether they're living here or they're living in Chutzlaretz. Everyone's doing their best. But uh, we've been hearing terrible things that have been happening in the United States as well and in England. A, tr a huge increase in anti-Semitic activity in Europe and in the United States. Rahman Litzlan. Um, and everyone here, of course, is trying to do their best. Uh, Larry's uh, was packing up goods. Larry is packing up goods for people. Larry, in his 80th year or his 81st year, he's putting, he's got his his nose to the grindstone, as we all have here in the land of Israel, doing our best. And I know our people in the United States, our brothers and sisters in the United States and in Europe, are doing their best for us as well. We wish our, our everybody that they should be safe. And uh, Kodesh Baruch should protect us. Um, and uh, we should all say, to, who's this from? Erwin Posner. Yeah, you're quite right. All right. Like to, May I we, just we should, one second. We should all say to him for our soldiers and for our sports support staff and for the whole of Klali Yes, David. Um, first, just a comment. The whole section of Ezekiel 
seems to be very, very repetitive and long-winded. You know, you could actually say, this is what I'm going to do, it's going to be done, and goes on page after page after page. But the other interesting thing is... You can write in god at god.com and say, you know, can we have like um, uh, a shortened version? Can you... Can you... <laughs> You know, this is this book's been good for a few thousand years, yeah. but we could do we could do but, with the pricey. But the other interesting thing is the same diction, Chema El Gabish. He's going is according to Ezekiel, is the end is going to repeat it, Gog and Magog. Yes, correct, correct. We haven't come to that when we come yeah, to that's that. A long, it's probably two years down the line. Yeah, it's a little bit further down the line. We'll come to the stones of El Gabish again. Okay, uh, I wish everybody a safe week, a good week, a happy week. Um, stay yeah. safe, and please God, by next week, please God, next Monday, we should have better news, and there should be better news uh, reporting by CNN and the BBC and the Guardian, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Post, and all these publications that see Israel as the pariah state. Um, we're not pariahs. And uh, as Tom Leary said, I'll just give you a finish with a quote from Tom Leary, the Canadian uh, comedian. Uh, when it comes to the Jews, the worst thing they can do to you is debate you to death. And um, that's pretty much the truth. That's all we're interested in, in debating you to death. We don't want to fight. We just want peace with a Zera HaShalom, as uh, Zachary describes us. Call to everybody. Stay safe. Have a great week. Hope you enjoyed the share. Bye-bye. See you later, Harry. Bye-bye. Yeah.